Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is episode 80 for September 10, 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Institute. 20 years after the deadly terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, how has the global terrorist threat and American strategy against it evolved? And what lessons can we learn from the successes and failures of U.S. counterterrorism policy as we enter the third decade since 9-11. We'll speak with two of the country's leading scholars of terrorist groups and counterterrorism after this. This is Anna Borshevskaya, the Ira Weiner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Today, I'm joined by Washington Institute scholars Aaron Zellin and Matthew Levitt. Aaron is the Richard Barrow Fellow at the Washington Institute, where his research focuses on Sunni Arab jihadist movements. He's the founder of the acclaimed Jihadology.net website. His recent major studies include the monograph, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad, and the presidential transition memo, Syria at the Center of Power Competition and Terrorism. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. Matthew Levitt is the Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Reinhard Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Washington Institute. Previously, he served as a counterterrorism intelligence analyst at the FBI and served in counterterrorism leadership positions at both the Treasury and the State Departments. Matt has written definitive books on the terrorist groups Hamas and Hezbollah. And he authored the presidential transition memo, Rethinking U.S. Efforts on Counterterrorism Toward a Sustainable Plan Two Decades After 9-11. Matt, welcome. Pleasure to be here. We're about to mark the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. I'd like to start by asking, where were you on 9-11? How did you experience the terrible events of that day? Matt? Well, I was a counterterrorism intelligence analyst at the FBI in September 2001. But ironically, I wasn't in the office on that morning. I was a rare PhD candidate. I was all but dissertation uh, at the FBI and uh, had been unable to spend any time on the on the PhD for quite some time. So with my supervisors, we planned months in advance for me to clear all the work off my desk and for me to take off a random day, not a Monday or a Friday, lest there be some temptation to take a long weekend. So a random Tuesday, which ended up being 9-11. So I got my, helped my wife and children get out of the house and sat down at the computer just in time to see a news ticker across the screen saying that a turboprop airplane had hit the Trade Center. And I ran into the other room, turned on the TV just in time to see um, United Airlines Flight 175 smash into the second tower. Uh, within hours, I was at FBI headquarters and I was one of two analysts tasked to be the analysts, the only analysts, for the, the, the airline plots. Uh, within a few hours, there was a, an analytical team for each flight, uh, and I led the analytical team for Flight 175, that flight that I ran into the TV room to, to see crash into the towers. Aaron? I was uh, only 15 when uh, the 9-11 attacks happened. Uh, I was in uh, sophomore year of high school, and we were in our second period health class. And we remember hearing uh, news that there was an attack on the World Trade Center and there were TVs in all of our high school buildings. Uh, and so uh, we turned on the TV and a few minutes later, like Matt said, we saw the second plane hit 
the trade center as well. At the time, I remember that it was a bit chaotic because many people didn't know what was going on and whether there are other planes that could potentially hit other parts of the country. And I'm, I'm from Chicago and there were worries. I remember that something could happen in downtown Chicago. My dad was working there and uh, the phone lines were jammed up just because everybody was calling everybody trying to see what was going on. But in many ways, that day is the reason why I started uh, being interested in doing research on jihadi groups because, you know, I was only 15 at the time. So I was uh, young enough where I didn't know a ton about what was going on in the world, but old enough to sort of understand the significance of, of what was going on. And that's why then a few years later, when I went to undergraduate school, I decided to start uh, learning more about the Middle East and Islam and Arabic um, and to focus more on why this all happened and to hopefully help people understand what was going on uh, going forward. It, it, it's it's a, a profound illustration, uh, your, your two experiences of, of just uh, how deeply uh, the events of that day are, are have rippled through the lives of uh, American people and, and our country. Well, speaking of the, the the study that you've you've essentially devoted your life to, Aaron, you follow the operational and ideological activities of Sunni jihadist groups like Al Qaeda, the Islamic State, and others more closely than anyone that I know who writes in English. So, beyond specific named groups, how has Sunni jihadism broadly changed and adapted in the last two decades? Uh, what what's the current state of the threat? from Sunni jihadism to American interests? Uh, the jihadi movement in many ways has uh, uh, changed in five ways, or they've been adapting in five different ways. They've created branches in various countries. They've proliferated in a way no one would have imagined in different online spaces. Um, there's also been a divergence in methodologies between Al-Qaeda and other groups. Uh, we've seen them become far more locally and regionally focused than just this global external operations capacities. And more recently, as a consequence of this, finally, uh, they're focusing more on DAO or proselytization activities and governance locally. Uh, I think it's important to remember that on 9-11, at least, uh, Al-Qaeda was uh, mainly based in the AFPAC region as an organization. Of course, they had a network of individuals in other places too. But afterwards, uh, as a way to try and continue to operate, they began to create branches in a variety of locations. So you have AQAP in Yemen, or later Al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQIM in North Africa, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, um, Jabhat al-Nusra, and Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, as an example. We also saw the growth of sort of these local theater groups in Western countries like Al-Muhajirun in the UK, or Sharia for Belgium, or Revolution Muslim in the US. And therefore, this was a way to to expand the ability of, of these broader networks to operate in a, in a greater fashion beyond just the focus in particular war zones. Um, beyond this, in the online sphere, you saw a proliferation online, first with these password-protected forums, and more recently with uh, social media platforms, which I think people are a bit more familiar with. Um, as part of this, we also saw efforts by the movement to translate their content from the originals in Arabic to more idiomatic understandings in languages like English, as well as many other languages in Western Europe and uh, from other parts of the world. One of the interesting things we saw in the aftermath of 9-11 was that there was sort of this unipolar moment for Al-Qaeda itself. Uh, 
Part of this was as a consequence of the U.S. not only targeting al-Qaeda, but these other smaller Arab jihadi groups that were based there. And as a result, many of them came together and coalesced more so. But in, in a decade or two uh, since, we've also seen a divergence um, from al-Qaeda first with, uh, of course, I think people are very familiar with the story of the Islamic State now or ISIS and how they've taken a more radical tack than al-Qaeda itself. Um, but more recently, we've seen with Hayat Tahrir al-Sham uh, in Syria, which was originally Jabhat al-Nusra and al-Qaeda's uh, branch there, um, they've become a bit more pragmatic. Of course, they still believe in jihadi ideology, but they are more focused locally and are, are not interested in external operations uh, in the West. Um, another thing, too, as a consequence of 9-11 uh, in the aftermath, is that we've seen a lot more uh, locally and regionally focused uh, opportunities, uh, and partially because of the CT efforts and the fact that in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings 10 years ago, there are a lot more spaces for these groups to operate. Hmm. And I think it's important to remember that part of the reason of Al-Qaeda's initial attacks, whether it was 9-11 or the embassy attacks or U.S.'s coal and the like, so that the U.S. would stop supporting local Arab regimes and therefore the jihadis would then be able to take them over and create their own Islamic state. Um, so that's uh, important to remember. And as a relation to the fact that it's more focused locally, we've seen them reaching out to populations more and building these sort of proto-states because they have the opportunities to do so now. Matt, the uh, Aaron talked about 9-11 uh, leading local and diffuse jihadist groups to coalesce under the Al-Qaeda banner, at least for a while. Was that what you were seeing uh, in the FBI as you were uh, digging into the attacks in, in the days, weeks, months afterwards? The investigation into the attacks in the days and weeks afterwards were really focused on uh, very granular, in a very granular way on attacks in the United States. There was already a lot of investigation into the Al-Qaeda franchises that were popping up around the world. But what we noticed quite quickly was that the spectacular nature of the September 11th attacks uh, gave Al-Qaeda a huge shot in the arm. And a lot of people wanted to join Al-Qaeda. A lot of people wanted to join the winning team. This was the first uh, uh, Middle Eastern uh, militant or terrorist group that had been able to carry out a strike such as this targeting America, the country that many uh, of them saw as kind of the head of the snake, uh, the, the entity that was propping up these uh, illegitimate and insufficiently Islamic regimes in the region. And that gave Al-Qaeda a huge burst in the arm. Al-Qaeda then quickly started facing a very difficult time in Afghanistan. But even as Al-Qaeda leadership was fleeing Afghanistan and going through Tora Bora, making their way into Pakistan, Al-Qaeda franchises throughout the world uh, started to galvanize themselves. Uh, and we've seen that over and over with the Islamic State and other groups. There are these... Um, uh, ups and downs. And I think that when we take a step back and we look back at events 20 years later, I think we have to recognize that from a tactical counterterrorism perspective, we've been very, very successful. There's been, there has not been another spectacular attack in the United States in 20 years. The number of attacks have been very, very few. They've been much more likely to be individuals, homegrown violent extremists than organized uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, homeland security is much stronger. The likelihood that a terrorist group could carry out a spectacular terrorist attack in the West is much smaller today than it was back then. 
But from a strategic perspective, we have not been very successful. There are many more people radicalized to the point where they believe that violence targeting civilians is the only or best or most effective way to affect the cultural, political, or religious change they want. There are fact that they're more radicalized, many more radicalized people today than at 9-11 is a significant failure in our struggle, our 20-year struggle to counter terrorism. I, I, I want to I stick with the what we just raised there, Matt, uh, the, the, the notion that we've been tactically successful uh, in preventing another 9-11 style attack, at least in, in the United States. Much of our response to the events of 20 years ago was predicated on achieving just that, preventing another mass casualty terrorist attack inside the United States. But given the metastasizing spread of Sunni jihadist groups, the foreign fighters that have been pooled and, and trained and gained experience in, in multiple combat zones and, and in some cases gone back to their homelands, but also the seemingly narrower regional focus of many of these splinter groups, the smaller groups as they've evolved. How would each of you describe the danger of more 9-11 style attacks on American or Western centers? Aaron? I think in many ways, uh, what happened on 9-11, at least in the last 20 years, can be seen as an anomaly compared to anything else. Of course, we've still had other um, big type of terrorist attacks in places like the UK, Spain, France, and Belgium, um, as well as um, some smaller ones in the US as well. But a lot of the focus of the jihadi movement is now locally and regionally based in terms of insurgencies against the governments that they're going against there, as well as trying to build up potential states that they could build one day in various locations, depending on what particular group you're, sh you're talking about. Of course, that doesn't mean that uh, the interests of the U.S. or the West are not necessarily a potential target in those locations either. For example, eight or nine years ago, there was a series of attacks or riots at U.S. embassies and consulates in different parts of the Arab world. We've also seen in places like Somalia, Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, where um, hotels or tourist locations have been attacked where Westerners um, operate or, 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 or travel to, um, mm -hmm. as well as different uh, levels of kidnapping against Western tourists or aid workers as well. Um, so it's not completely out of um, the question that there is a possibility that interests are uh, definitely a target, but it's definitely more of an immediate issue for many of the U.S.'s uh, allies in the region and therefore the focus is, is, is there than it say on the homeland in many respects, due in part to many of the different uh, legal changes as well as the, the ways that uh, the governments change with internally in the apparatus. Um, and, and therefore, while it's definitely, uh, you know, people still are plotting, uh, you still see arrests happening um, and, and press releases being put out by DOJ in relation to them. But it's 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 nowhere near uh, obviously the nine eleven attack itself. Matt, there's there is a strain of thinking uh, among the American public, basically says if if the terrorist groups are splintered and they're planning attacks or taking actions in Sudan, in Libya, wherever, it's not our problem. And 
that you know there the terrorist threat uh is is seen by some Americans as it's either a threat to the American homeland to us personally where we live or it's just not our problem and we can not worry about it or take a more hands-off approach or or basically look elsewhere uh, how do you respond to that line of thinking though first of all 911 taught us that failure to pay attention to the development of radicalism and violent extremism abroad until it's reached a point where it threatens you at home is um, is, is a day late and a dollar short. But more than that, in the, in the 20 years that have, have passed, uh, the world has become even more flat. Borders are, are less relevant. Ideas are shared instantaneously across borders over social media. And so dangerous ideas, events that happen far away can trigger things to happen here in your neighborhood very, very quickly. That doesn't mean that we should treat the need to counter terrorism at home the same way we would think about countering terrorism somewhere across the world. Obviously, protecting the homeland is a much greater priority for us, but it does mean we don't have the luxury of simply ignoring those things that are happening abroad. The pace at which things happen, the flash to bang uh, mm. is so fast. Radicalization happens so quickly and ideas can travel such tremendous distances so quickly that we can't simply pretend that what's happening elsewhere doesn't affect us. I do think that 20 years after 9-11, we do need to reevaluate what our counterterrorism posture should be in different places around the world and what our military deployments should be in different parts of the world and how we should be utilizing and leveraging capacity building and specifically civilian and diplomatic counterterrorism tools in ways we haven't necessarily fully exploited them in recent years. Not every counterterrorism problem has a military solution by any stretch of the imagination, but we do need to be engaged. I'd like to dig in a little bit on on some policy specifics. Uh, you, Matt, you 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 made the case that we've uh, in twenty years we've seen a significant tactical success and significant strategic failures. I like to ask for the good news first. So. On the tactical side, what lessons should we learn from the successes we've had? So there are several lessons that we should learn from the successes that we've had. One is that at 9-11, we were not doing anywhere near enough to protect the homeland, and we've made tremendous progress. We need to be wary about not confusing border security with uh, you know, an immigration policy that neglects the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. Immigrants are not the problem. The problem is not being careful about checking who comes in the country. Hmm. Uh, and I think if you look back uh, at the past 20 years, at the cases of individuals who have come from abroad and have then gotten caught up in uh, terrorism cases, the vast, vast majority of them include people who were not in any way radical when they came into this country, hmm. but they radicalized here. And that gets to uh, a bigger point, which is that we have made good strides in preventing radicalization here in the homeland, but not great strides. Hmm. We went through a period of time where we were kind of demonizing Muslims and at a minimum making Muslim communities feel like uh, they were 
inherently part of the problem. Whereas now, 20 years after 9-11, we recognize that more often than not, it's members of a community uh, that are telling us, hey, we see a problem here. Can you help us out? Mm -hmm. And there's much more that we can and need to do to prevent radicalization in our communities. But to do that, we're going to need not necessarily more police officers or FBI agents or intelligence analysts. We'll need those too, but we'll need more clinical psychiatrists and, and social workers and people who are doing the things that make society function, that make people able to plug in to what society has to offer them and make sure that people are acculturated into our society. All of counterterrorism is not security. In fact, at its most basic, prevention, preventing people from getting radicalized in the first place is about good governance. It's about uh, a functioning and healthy society. Matt, you're, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, things that go well beyond what I think most people think of when they think of counterterrorism. This is, you're not just talking about drone strikes uh, in, in uh, desert hideaways. You're, you're, you're talking about uh, breaking the chain of extremism, in some cases at an individual level, uh, before people become motivated by ideas to take up arms to commit violence. And Aaron, I, I'm wondering from your insights into following what jihadist movements are doing, how how are these movements dealing with potentially more successful counter extremism, uh, and 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 how are they trying to get around our attempts to stop the ideological chain from being angry about some issue or feeling alienated, and eventually at the end of the ladder taking up arms? Unfortunately at least when you look outside of the U.S. context, um, there are plenty of opportunities for individuals to get involved because of the various grievances one might have in their own country since uh, many individuals get involved because of, you know, problems related to poor governance or the authoritarian ways that um, uh, these, these, these governments operate. And as a result, uh, this creates an opening for these individuals, uh, um, for them to be interested in the ideology that Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups uh, proffer. Part of this also is exacerbated by civil wars. It's been one of the key indicators we've seen for growth in the jihadi movement over the years, even before 9-11. It's important to recall that the beginning of the large-scale sort of foreign fighter mobilizations began with the anti-Soviet jihad um, in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. So uh, that, in many ways, has helped bred the future generations of these movements and therefore provided new lifeblood um, to these uh, various groups and networks over time. And, and therefore, mitigating civil wars in many ways would really help tamp down the potential for uh, these mobilizations and um, new lifeblood essentially being brought into the movement beyond prior generations that are already getting involved. I mean, although the first generation from Afghanistan in the 80s, many of them either uh, retired essentially after the Afghan war or others that continued on have since uh, died or been killed, there do remain some of those original people still in the movement. Um, so you can only imagine what that could mean in the future in relation to the most recent mobilization mm. um, in Syria. 
And, and we know that, unfortunately, uh, due to instability in a number of countries, uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa nowadays, as well as the fact that the Taliban is now back in control of Afghanistan, that there's uh, limitless potential and that that's one of the reasons why the jihadi movement has been able to be so successful in many ways in um, continuing to operate is that it's not just focused on one particular country and therefore depending on sort of the rise and fall of a particular group or conflict, they've easily been able to redirect uh, resources because they are networks to from one place to the next. Well, and, and that brings us to the, uh, the the bad news side of Matt's uh, transition recommendations. Matt, what policy lessons should we, or should more to the point, the Biden administration draw from the strategic failures of our counterterrorism policies? In, in the third decade post 9-11, what can we do differently and better? Well, first of all, we're going to have to recognize that while there are going to be plenty of instances where uh, security first responses are necessary, plenty of cases where we'll need to deploy the military, counterterrorism is not in and of itself only about military and other security responses. If you want to get ahead of the problem, if you want to get ahead of the curve, if you want to be able to prevent people from being radicalized in the first place, we're going to have to invest in very significant ways in uh, our efforts to uh, prevent people from radicalizing in the ways we did with our military. I mean, in the, in the, in the years after 9-11, we had extraordinary investments, for example, in new intelligence capabilities. There was a, an absolute revolution in, in military affairs and how we went about finding, fixing, and finishing uh, terrorists. Uh, but we haven't seen that type of revolution or the investment that comes with it uh, in the pure counterterrorism mission. And now as we're shifting away from a focus that is principally military in nature, uh, and we're going to be focusing on indicators and warning, on intelligence and forecasting, we need to invest, A, in those intelligence capabilities, artificial intelligence and other things, and we need to invest in efforts to prevent and counter violent extremism. That is going to be something that most people don't think of when they think of counterterrorism. But we need to invest in our communities. We need to invest in our society. We need to invest in home, and we need to support countries to invest abroad in good governance and rule of law and anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. The types of things that didn't get our full attention over the past 20 years and that fueled the ongoing and indeed significant growth in extremism that we see today. On that note, looking forward, uh, American leaders of all parties seem to broadly agree that we're transitioning from a global security environment characterized by a focus on counterterrorism to one defined by renewed great power competition. I'd like to hear your advice for how our policymakers and practitioners can maintain or increase the effectiveness of our defenses against terrorism while we increasingly focus on non-terrorism security challenges like relations with state powers like Russia, China, India, and so forth. Aaron, I'd like to hear your thoughts first. I think one of the important things to note up front is that while people pit great power competition versus counterterrorism, it's important to note that there are also many linkages between them. Um, I'll use Syria as an example. Um, uh, for one, uh, 
one of the reasons why we saw a proliferation uh, of jihadist groups in Syria in the first place was because the Assad regime released a number of prisoners out of its prisons in June 2011 because it knew that it would be beneficial to it to discredit the uprising against him. Hmm. Additionally, uh, Assad's uh, backers in Iran uh, have used Shia terrorist militias, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, as well as Iraqi uh, terrorist groups, among others, to back uh, the regime to do its bidding to fight against the mainstream rebellion. On top of this, if you look at it from the U.S. and its allies, um, Turkey allowed, because it was against uh, the Assad regime, uh, foreign terrorist fighters to flow across its border into Syria from a tactical level, um, which provided a lifeblood to first Jabhat al-Nusra and then later ISIS. Um, and more recently, uh, Turkey's been backing Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the local jihadist group there. Uh, in relation to this, the U.S. has been working with the Syrian Democratic Forces to fight against um, uh, the Islamic State and its former territorial control there, uh, while many uh, vestiges of, of the SDF previously had been part of sort of the Syrian version of the PKK, which is a designated terrorist group and also a group that Turkey views as one of its mortal enemies. So in many ways, this competition between all these various countries and what's been going on in Syria, even though we know it started originally as an uprising to oust the Assad regime um, and for people to have democratic governance locally, um, which later turned in, in many ways to this proxy war. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this terrorism element and terrorism groups um, that have been used or have been perceived to be used by others that could then potentially hurt the interests of the other countries involved. And therefore, it's in many ways inextricably linked. So decoupling these two, um, I think, is short-sighted, even if uh, I think it's important to understand that when you uh, uh, go outside of maybe the Syrian context, it's, of course, different, um, but we shouldn't I- ignore these aspects of it as well. Leaders need to explain to the American public why both great power competition and other types of security concerns, including counterterrorism, are important and how they can be done at the same time. To my mind, there's a significant amount of Venn diagram overlap between these missions and where we can be most effective and where we can uh, be uh, best custodians of taxpayer dollars is by finding that Venn diagram overlap. So for example, you know, in many places around the globe where we are in competition with the likes of Russia or China, local countries are especially interested in counterterrorism support. Counterterrorism assistance is a form of currency. We can leverage that currency, not just in the realm of counterterrorism, but in great power competition. Hmm. Think of Africa, for example. There's a tremendous rise in terrorism in Africa. Africa is one of the growing areas that we need to pay attention to from a counterterrorism perspective, but it is also an important area of great power competition. We need to think about ways that our various types of deployments, whether it's military, diplomatic, economic, can be done in a way that gains us ground on both our counterterrorism and our great power competition uh, agendas. Um, You know, under the Trump administration, there was a 
uh, a move to to move U.S. forces out of AFRICOM. And the reason was given was so that they could be moved to Asia. But there are very few uh, soldiers in AFRICOM. It was a very small, uh, not costly, not particularly dangerous deployment. One that was a great bang for the buck, much like uh, Syria, as Aaron was discussing. We, so we need to think more strategically about how we think about these two uh, uh, strategic agendas that we have and the ways in which they are not in competition. Hmm. When I think about where we are today, 20 years after 9-11, I very much recognize that we need to rationalize the counterterrorism mission. We need to free up resources, personnel, dollars for other priority efforts, whether it's great power competition or combating global pandemics or economic recovery, et cetera. But we also don't want to lose the gains, the advantages that we have um, worked so hard to achieve over the past 20 years when it comes to counterterrorism. So what can we do to take the various things we've learned and developed in the counterterrorism realm and apply them in other areas like great power competition? And how can we think about certain geographic areas or certain thematic areas of our work and figure out ways to achieve more than one goal with one type of action? On this anniversary, can you take a look forward? Uh, what is the future of the terrorist threat? We make a mistake if we limit our conversation about counterterrorism only to uh, Sunni terrorist groups. First of all, we have experienced a significant rise in uh, terrorism and militancy by Shia extremist groups. But more importantly, we're going to be dealing over the next 20 years with other types of terrorism, in particular, white supremacist, anti-government, militia, uh, domestic violent extremism. A person is much more likely to be killed or injured in a domestic violent extremist attack than a foreign terrorist attack here in the United States today. That's something we have to wrap our heads around. We have to ask ourselves, how comfortable will we be? going out and in doing community engagements of the type we did with Muslim American communities saying, hey, look, here's the type of extremism we're seeing in your community. Help, let us help you protect your kids. How comfortable we're going to be doing that in a rural white American community. And I think we're going to have to think about that long and hard, but not too long because we have to act. Uh, the, uh, the nature of terrorism is not limited to any one community, to any one geography, to any one faith. I would just briefly add to that, if you look at sort of the ideological production, how that relates to online spaces, is that we also see some convergences between sort of online counterculture and different ideologies in the way that they use memes online and how that's translated between jihadists to far-right wing extremists to even other forms of extremism. And therefore, that's what we've seen, especially in the U.S., what some have called sort of this salad bar, salad bar ideology where people pick and choose pieces of different ideologies that they might want to use to justify the type of violence that they might want to get involved in uh, mm. going forward in the future. Um, and therefore, because of the nature of, of ways people can see people from other cultures now all over the Internet um, talking about different issues, it, it's definitely something that's 
uh, worth looking into in, in greater specs because just recently when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, you saw people on the far right uh, sort of uh, cheering on or being excited about what happened, even though they're obviously ideologically uh, diametrically opposed because they see it as a, a way forward and potentially for them to do something similar within the United States itself. We've been speaking today with Aaron Zellin and Matthew Levitt. Aaron is the Richard Borrow Fellow at the Washington Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at AZellin. That's A-Z-E-L-I-N. Matt is the Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Institute. Find Matt on Twitter at Levitt underscore Matt. That's L-E-V-I-T-T underscore M-A-T-T. Find links to their publications in the show notes. Aaron, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Thank you.